Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 197, recorded Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, renting a Tesla and the 2023 Traveler's Gift Guide. Coming to you today from the Travel Commons studios in Nashville, Tennessee, after a pretty solid three weeks of travel, a business trip up to the Boston suburbs, then down to New York to meet up with Irene and Claire for a long weekend of knock it around Brooklyn and Queens. And then after a day of reloading suitcases and picking up the cat, driving up to Chicago for friends and family. When we got back home last Friday, I was ready to just stay put for a little bit which is about all it will be because we head out to the UK in about 10 days. The Boston trip came up all of a sudden, and I think is only my second post-pandemic business trip. My first was down to Miami in May 2021. Maybe I've timed out of my road warrior status because everything felt, I don't know, a bit off. Flying Nashville to Logan, my choices were JetBlue or Delta, and I don't have status on either, so I ended up just choosing JetBlue because it was the earlier flight out. No status meant they also wanted me to pay 80 to 100 bucks in addition to the 450 for a one-way ticket. I mean, I could have expensed it through, but the annoyance vein in my temple started to pulsate. How dare you, JetBlue? And so in return for this righteous anger, I get assigned at the gate a middle seat in the last boarding group. I resign myself to having to gate check my carry-on, but then when boarding is called, the pre-boarding announcement is for JetBlue and American Airlines elites, which I am. Oh, jeez. I mean, what an amateur mistake, not keeping track of alliances and partnerships. Again, my my road warrior skills, definitely rusty. I mean, if I'd put my Advantage Platinum number into my reservation instead of just my plain old true blue number, I probably could have saved myself all that righteous anger and vein throbbing. Luckily, though, I always carry my physical elite cards with me, so I show my Advantage Platinum card to the agent, she just waves me on, and I find an empty bin right above my seat. I was a little concerned about fitting my big carry-on in an Airbus 220. It was my first time on this plane, but actually no problem. The overhead bins on this plane, at least how JetBlue has configured it, are huge. So after my window seat neighbor got settled in, I ended up putting on my Bose noise-canceling headphones, dialed up the white noise app on my iPhone, and middle seat be damned, just nodded off sitting up straight. One thing I haven't lost while working virtually, being able to fall asleep even before my 7 a.m. flight rotates off the runway. Following up, it seems that it, I don't know, it just wouldn't be a proper following up segment without yet another update on the U.S.'s real ID or the EU's ETS rolling delays. Let's do ETS first, the EU's pre-travel authorization system that gobs of clickbait websites have mislabeled a European visa. 
The EU has tweaked their go-live date yet again from last month's May 2025 to a less definite, more nebulous mid-2025, which could be May or June or July. But, you know, I'm not quite sure why anyone in their right mind would want to flip the switch on this system in the summer, during Europe's peak tourist season. So I got to tell you, I'm taking the over on this. I don't see it going live any earlier than October 2025. The U.S., on the other hand, seems to be sticking to their May 2025 date for now. Remember, the initial deadline for needing a real ID to board a commercial flight was January 2018, which then got kicked to October 2020. But then COVID hit, and in April 2020, soon after just about every government building was emptied out and locked up, the bright sparks at Department of Homeland Security decided that driving crowds of people toward closed DMVs to replace their old driver's license wouldn't be great. And so they pushed the deadline a year to October 2021, which we'll all remember wasn't that much better, at least with regards to DMV accessibility. I mean, I remember lining up outside in December 2021 in Chicago, uh, at a DMV to renew my driver's license. And so another push, 19 months this time to May 2023. And then last December, they pushed it another two years to May 2025 because, I don't know, who knows? Uh, who, I, I can't figure that one out. So really, the U.S. has got nothing to say to the EU. But on these flights a couple of weeks ago, I started seeing new signage, Real ID coming in May 2025. Even the Delta app, when I checked in for my Logan to LaGuardia flight, had a banner across the top of it saying the same thing. I I mean, why? I mean, why wind everybody up about a deadline that's 18 months away? And, you know, if the Kabuki theater of the past five years is any guide, we'll get pushed again. Now, where DHS is moving much faster is rolling out biometrics to airport and customs checkpoints. Over the years here on Travel Commons, I've talked about my experiences with biometrics usage, starting with my first fingerprint scan back in the late 90s so I could skip the U.S. customs line at Toronto Pearson Airport. Then, in 2008, letting the first iteration of Clear scan my eyeballs in exchange for a shortcut to the front of the TSA line, This was before pre-check was a thing. And then in 2011, a background check and another fingerprint scan, this time for global entry, so I could skip all the U.S. customs lines. So yes, I'll do damn close to anything to skip an airport line. But over the past couple of years, it feels like the Department of Homeland Security has been turning it up a notch. October 2021, our first international flight in a couple of years on Air France, the gate agent took a picture of us while we were boarding and then didn't need to see our boarding pass. Last April, returning from the Netherlands, the global entry kiosk no longer needed to scan my fingerprints. A quick side glance at the camera was enough to recognize me and let me through. And now a couple of weeks ago at the Nashville pre-check line, a big sign, identity verification technology, biometric technology is available at this checkpoint. Your participation is optional. Now, 
this is new. It wasn't there two months ago when we flew out to Maine. So I give my driver's license to the TSA guy standing next to something that looks like a camera on a stick. I mean, it looked a little bit like the the side of the electronic customs gates at Heathrow Airport. Anyhow, he puts my ID in the machine, tells me to look at the camera, and then looks at the screen and waves me through. Now, a couple of things here. I'm not sure how this is different from the TSA guy looking at my face and comparing it to the picture on my license. And I didn't see any way that my participation was optional. And I certainly didn't get to skip any lines for this biometric giveaway. I've been trying since April to get somebody from TSA or DHS on the podcast to talk about this biometrics push and have gotten nothing, nothing but repeated, I'll get back to you real soon from the TSA press secretary. So now, I don't know, maybe this new equipment gets us to automated checkpoints, the ones I've seen in some smaller European airports, which could shorten the security lines, but I have to tell you, I had to dig pretty deep into a bunch of jargony PDF documents on the TSA website to get even a hint of any benefit to the regular traveler. I don't know, maybe all the benefits are waiting on the real ID rollout. Sure, once everybody has that little gold star in their license, it'll be magically clear sailing. And hey, if you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter X. I don't know. As long as the URL is still twitter.com, I'm going to, I still going to call it Twitter. Anyhow, whatever you want to call it, you can always message me at mpeacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account at Travel Commons. Or, you know, you can skip all that social media stuff. Uh, I can't even figure it all out anymore. And post your comments straight on the website at TravelCommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is renting a Tesla. I don't know. After two, three episodes of nattering on about electric vehicles, I decided to take up Tesla on what has been an incessant set of email offers. And I rented a Tesla for my Boston business trip. Yeah, I decided to give, uh, give an EV a try, but on someone else's dime. The client site was only 18 miles from Logan, and Google Maps told me there was a Tesla supercharger nearby, so range risk wouldn't be an issue. A couple of days before my flight, Hertz sent me an email, which was pretty much a crash course on operating a Tesla. Pictures, a lot of text, links to YouTube videos. I have to tell you, I was both impressed and slightly overwhelmed, but I grabbed a beer out of the fridge, a 16-ouncer, because this was going to take a bit, and ground through all the email links, which actually, I think at the end of the day, saved me time trying to figure out things in the Hertz lot. Now, over the past couple of years, we've talked about barren Hertz lots, renters queuing up for cars to appear. So when the Hertz employee pointed me to an EV aisle full up with, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 Tesla Model 3s and a couple of Polestars, maybe a Kia in there, it, it just 
took me a moment to process all my options. Now, my usual strategy when I have a choice is to run through the cars on the aisle and pick the one with the lowest mileage. But I wasn't quite sure if that worked with a Tesla. And if it did, I didn't recall from my crash course where to find the odometer. So I just chose a black Model 3 that had the least beat up wheel rims, trying to minimize any damage arguments come return time. After I got in, powered it up, and got acclimated to the massive tablet screen in the center console, I saw that the battery level was at 69%. Now, one of the crash course tutorials said it would be at 100% and that I'd be charged if I returned it under 80%. So I snapped a picture of the battery display and told the guy at the exit gate. He shrugged, told me just to bring it back at the same level. He didn't seem very concerned. Now, coming out of the lot, the Tesla drove fine. It was uh, it was a fine it was a fine drive. After a couple of days of driving around, the battery had dropped into the mid 40s. So I decided to try out the Tesla supercharger network. Tesla's nav app directed me to a nearby shopping center. The chargers were in the farthest back corner of the Target parking lot. So I backed in, looking at the other Teslas, this seemed to be the thing to do, plugged in the charger, and was a little shocked to see that it would take an hour to get me charged up from the mid-40s up to 100%. Now, Irene would have no problem with that. An excuse to spend an hour shopping at Target? Yeah, bring it on. Me, not so much. Luckily, there was a Chipotle across the street, so I locked the car, walked over to grab lunch. When I got back, the car still had another five minutes to go before it got to 100%. I got to tell you, I'm glad I didn't wait till it got down to the 20s. Though maybe I should have waited because by my last day, I'd driven off a chunk of that 100% charge and heading back to Logan, I wasn't completely confident that I'd arrive with the battery at the 69% level that I'd picked it up at. And I guess that's a place where an EV rental requires a bit more logistical planning. A regular gas car, there's loads of places I could hit quickly to splash in a couple of last-minute gallons to keep the fuel gauge on full. An EV? Well, the Tesla nav app vectored me way off my usual I-90, I-93 tunnel routes into Logan, taking me way east past some marshes just off the bay to the back corner of another Target parking lot where I backed in amid another half dozen other Teslas, their drivers all sitting there working their phones, waiting for their cars to charge. I waited about 10 minutes, splashed in enough electricity to get the battery gauge to 75 and then lit out. But, you know, I probably actually didn't need to worry turning the car in. I told the Hertz guy that I was under 80% because I'd gotten the car at 69%. No problem, he said. Uh, he didn't seem very concerned. Honestly, I've never seen Hertz guys so nonchalant about their cars, especially after Hertz said in their last earnings call that EV repair costs are about double what they pay for gas-powered cars. On the shuttle bus back to the terminal, I opened the email receipt from Hertz and saw that the $15 charge from my first supercharger visit had made it onto the invoice. Now, a couple of things crossed my mind. Definitely less than I would have spent filling up a gas car. 
And I was impressed by the quick turnaround time because the toll charge that I had incurred two days before that when leaving Logan through one of the tunnels still hadn't shown up and so is going to raise some eyebrows and accounts payable when I eventually try and expense it through. So all told, pretty good experience. Kudos to Hertz. And now they're trying to get me to rent a Polestar at Heathrow in a couple of weeks for our drive through the Devon countryside. Uh, You know, Boston was good. I just don't think I want to push my luck. second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is the 2023 Traveler's Gift Guide. You know, every couple of years around this time, I update my gift guide to give folks suggestions for the frequent traveler, travelers in their lives, or if you are the frequent traveler, a list of hints you might want to drop on family members who are looking for ideas for you. The first time I did a gift guide, I published it Thanksgiving week so people would have it for the Black Friday sales. But now, with the Christmas shopping season having blown way past that traditional Thanksgiving Friday start, and with radio stations barely able to wait for the kids to finish counting their Halloween candy before they flip the switch on their all-Christmas music format, I've dragged the publishing date up to the front of November. The 2020 gift guide was probably the most unique. All the restaurant lockdowns and indoor dining limits had us eating in our hotel rooms, which put bring-your-own dining sets and in-room coffee brewing kits onto the gift list. The disappearance of airport and in-flight mask mandates means that the number one gift on that year's list, comfortable masks, has also dropped off. But what hasn't dropped off and is regularly at the top of my lists is battery packs. Now, we've talked a lot about how we can't easily travel anymore without a working mobile phone. It holds our boarding passes, gives us gate change and flight delay notifications, unlocks our car if we've rented a Tesla, routes us around traffic jams, and connects us to our Airbnb hosts. So having that second or even third charge immediately available is critical to making it through a long travel day. I carry a Zender Super Mini Power Bank in my bag because its USB-C port quickly tops up my iPhone, while the USB-A port takes care of my Samsung tablet. I've recently updated Irene's lipstick charger to an anchor with a flip-out lightning connector for her iPhone 13 so that she doesn't have to fish around in her purse for a cable. But look, there are tons of choices uh, for battery packs. Just pick one, or maybe two. Noise-canceling headphones are also a perennial on my gift lists. I've been carrying Bose headphones for, I don't know, at least 15 years. Back then, the QC3s were de rigueur for any self-respecting road warrior. The aha moment for me was on a United Express Dash 8 turboprop flying to Sioux City, Iowa, with an intermediate stop in Waterloo, Iowa. Yeah, that was a That was a great flight. I was in a window seat on the wing, and the droning of that prop just encased me. I I, I just couldn't think of anything else until I flicked the switch on my Bose. I'm now on my third pair, upgraded to the Bose 700s. They're not compact, but they continue to earn their space in my travel bag. 
Now, I picked up a pair of Apple AirPod Pros on a good Prime Day sale last month, and so I was able to compare the Bose and the AirPod noise canceling on my Boston and New York flights. The AirPods are good, not as good as the Bose, though, and the battery doesn't last as long, which, you know what, makes sense given the massive size differential between an AirPod and the Bose over-the-ear cans. For me, the AirPod Pros are good for, I don't know, a two, two-and-a-half-hour flight, but I don't know, say for these upcoming flights between Nashville and Heathrow, I'll be packing the Bose. Apple AirTags earned a place on the list last October when I could see, sitting on the plane, that our bags weren't going to make the connection in Newark on our way home from Rome. Now, the AirTags didn't get our bags on that plane, but they did save us the 30 minutes of suspense waiting for them to come off the baggage carousel in Nashville and instead let us go straight to the baggage service agent, be the first in line to file our report, and then head home after what was a very long travel day. That was definitely worth the purchase price just for that. For someone making the transition from virtual work to physical world road warrior, how about a black 20-inch carry-on bag? Black not only makes you look thinner, it makes your bag look thinner to gate agents hunting for bag size or bait. My daughter had a baby blue roller bag for the longest time. She loved that color and it was really easy to spot on the luggage carousel, which ended up being a good thing because that bag ended up on the luggage carousels a lot because gate agents were always pulling her out of line to gate check that bag. So, Get a nondescript black bag with a set of clever neon-colored luggage tags as a stocking stuffer. If you often fly budget airlines that are sticklers on size, get a hard shell bag. It'll keep its dimensions better when overstuffed. And that hard polycarbonate shell will slide past the metal bars of the sizer easier than the ballistic nylon of a soft-sided bag. You could range up in size to a 22-incher, but I got to tell you, a 20-incher should fit safely in the overhead of just about every plane. I'm a big fan of the Travel Pro line. For me, they strike the right balance between price and quality. But there are lots, maybe way too many options out there for you to choose from. And here's a new list entrant, a travel power strip. Potentially one of the least sexy things I could put on a gift list. But I've always tried to populate these lists with things that I actually use and find myself needing the most when I'm on the road. And you'd think after, I don't know, 20 years of travelers needing to charge a bunch of electronics, PCs, mobile phones, tablets, you'd think hotels, B&Bs, resorts would put outlets that work on the top of flat surfaces like nightstands and tables, desks. But I'd say that on half of my trips this year, I've had to move furniture or get down on my hands and knees to find a single outlet. So you can get one of these cube-shaped travel adapters that show up on most travel gift guides, and you still got to crawl under the furniture every time you need to plug something new in. And that's why I recommend a compact power strip. You move the nightstand once to reach down, plug it in, and then set the other end, the end with the outlets, the end you'll need regular access to, on top of the nightstand. Any power strip you buy nowadays will have some mix of USB and regular AC outlets. Anchor seems to have an infinite range of them, 
But if Anchor is a little boring for you, way back in episode 159 in January 2020, longtime listener Arnold Hines gave high marks to a circular power strip called the Power Bagel. Three years on, Mojix, M-O-G-I-C-S, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Anyhow, the manufacturer of the Power Bagel now sells an updated version called the Super Bagel. Of course, why not? It's bigger faster, more powerful. Anyhow, so it's got lots of positive reviews confirming Arnold's view that the circle, the bagel shape, lets you use every outlet, even when using those big wall-ward power supplies. So anyhow, there you go. Five gift ideas to fit all budgets and with more than enough time to beat any early online shipping deadlines. Check out the show notes for links and happy shopping. All right, that's it. That's the End of Travel Cummins podcast number 197. As always, you can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can always ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. You can click on the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page at travelcommons.com for a transcript of the episode and links to the items on the gift guide. If you're not yet subscribed, there's a drop-down menu at the top of the Travel Commons homepage, and along the side of the page, you'll find links to all the Travel Commons socials. And hey, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com, M. Peacock on Twitter, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And until we talk again, safe travels, and thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Bye.